This is episode 120 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled The Trade Press and the Keating Five. Although this episode is being published while the pandemic is still keeping us locked inside, I did want to mention that Rob and I recorded this episode back in January uh, before we knew about the pandemic. And so perhaps, yay, for once you'll get an episode that doesn't talk one word about the pandemic. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I am delighted to have a new guest on the show. Rob Wells is with us. And I met Rob through his book, uh, The Enforcers, which will be um, mostly what we're talking about today. And I met that through NetGalley. And this is part of a series of episodes that I'm doing about journalism and journalists, which is a topic that I find quite interesting and have dabbled in a little bit myself, as many writers do. I ended up writing for a tiny local newspaper reporting on really exciting things like town council meetings and power outages and the skate park. But um, Rob actually has done very significant work in the field of journalism, so I'm going to introduce him first. He's an assistant professor at the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville. He's been teaching data journalism, journalism theory, business journalism, and reporting in Fayetteville since 2016. He earned his doctorate in journalism studies at the University of Maryland, Philip Merrill College of Journalism, and his research interests include business journalism and ways it can improve music to my ears. In 2013, he earned a Master of Arts in Liberal Studies at St. John's College in Annapolis. He holds a Bachelor of Arts in Government from California State University in Sacramento, so where I am today, or at least in the state where I am. So you've been all over the place, Rob. Prior to his career, Wells was Deputy Bureau Chief of the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones Newswires in Washington, D.C., and he's also reported for Bloomberg News, the Associated Press, and newspapers in California. There you go. He was a 2012 Reynolds Visiting Business Journalism Professor at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, and he's conducted training sessions for the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, Investigative Reporters and Editors, Association of Area Business Publishers, and the Reynolds Center for Business Journalism. He and his wife, Deborah C. St. Coeur, live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, with a large dog and a lot of jazz records. Okay, welcome to the show, Rob. Well, thank you, Jennifer, for having me. I'm going to read the title of the book. It's called The Enforcers, How Little-Known Trade Reporters Exposed the Keating Five and Advanced Business Journalism. And when I first read this title, 
was like, what, wait, what? <laughs> but when you, right. un, when you unpack it, it, it all makes sense. And it's interesting. The book came out in November of 2019, 30 years exactly after the savings and loan crisis of uh, 1989. And I was actually in graduate school at that time, getting my MBA in finance. And so I remember this period um, pretty vividly because it was such a you know enormous topic inside the the school with the professors and the students but for those of us who are a little younger than i am um take us back in time who was charles keating and how did that bring about the savings and loan crisis and i should mention the numbers that are bandied around for how much that cost the us taxpayers is more than 124 billion dollars and that's the conservative estimate that I use in, in my research. Uh, there are other, that's sort of a contested number, 124 billion, and it's, it's higher on other estimates, but it just gives you a sense of the scale. Charles Keating was a developer in Phoenix who uh, began his career as a, uh, as a lawyer in Cincinnati. He was a, a very remarkable individual in, in many ways in his collegiate career. He went through the University of Cincinnati and, and the University of Cincinnati Law School in less than three years. Hmm. Got his law degree, had a level of intensity that was incredible. At the same time, he was a, a nationally ranked athlete, an All-American swimmer. And he always had a very, you know, pretty, pretty good physical physique. He was kind of a towering individual, kind of very lanky and uh, very, very driven. Keating arose in an era when corporate conglomerates were coming together, and he ended up working with American Financial Corporation, uh, Charles Lindner's uh, group that owned Chiquita Bananas and the Cincinnati Reds and (laughs) the Cincinnati Inquirer at one point. And he was the general counsel and a senior vice president uh, for uh, Lindner. So he arose in this era of, uh, of corporate conglomeration. And while he was in Cincinnati, he and Lindner ended up buying a small savings and loan. And just to define terms for those who aren't familiar with them, savings and loans are very narrowly ta- tailored banks, uh, depository institutions that make loans to mostly middle-class individuals. They're They're part of the housing finance system that's kind of been eclipsed by technology and, and innovation in the, uh, in the financial system. But he and Linder bought a savings loan, and then they ended up getting into trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the late 70s over an insider loan deal. The SEC uh, had a settlement with them that involved not a lot of money, but it was uh, sort of a, a point on, on their record. And at that point, Keating split off from Lindner, moved out to Phoenix, Arizona with a home building unit that he took over from the Lindner Enterprise called American Continental Corporation. It was a huge success in the Southwest as a home builder. And they built gigantic subdivisions. And this was in the era where the the Sunbelt was beginning to explode. Mm-hmm. So he was in this, this moment in our country's history of still some, some significant growth in the housing sector, 
and uh, Reagan, uh, the Reagan administration had just come in and began to deregulate uh, a variety of industries, transportation, telecommunications, and banking. And they uh, had deregulated the savings loan industry in order for it to grow out of its problems. And Keating ended up getting involved in the, uh, in the SNL business as a way to find an alternative financing vehicle for some of his financial activities. He was doing quite a bit of speculation in the junk bond market. And he was also uh, doing uh, leverage uh, takeovers. He was a client of Michael Milken, who's one of the great villains of the uh, 1980s American finance. I remember that name. Yes. The, uh, Milken helped bankroll Keating's purchase of his savings loan called Lincoln Savings Loan, a very small institution out in Irvine, California. And Lincoln was making about, oh, about half of its assets were in housing loans when, when Keating bought it. And within a four-year period, it was down to less than 5%. Much of the activity that this little institution was doing is all was leveraged in, in speculative finance. So he took it away from its core roots of trying to supply credit to the middle class and was using it for uh, some pretty advanced leveraged and speculation for large uh, housing developments. This became a problem with the regulators because they didn't understand what he was doing. And they felt what they could grasp was he was taking excessive risk in Lincoln and had uh, driven up uh, quite a bit of leverage. And they were concerned that this risk in a institution that was insured by taxpayers would be um, would pose a potential loss to the to the federal uh, deposit insurance system so a lot of tension there with the regulators and 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 Keating with his attempt to to use this uh, savings loan for for some pretty uh, aggressive financial activities and he wasn't alone there were a lot of savings and loans that ultimately failed. And mm -hmm. I had to go back and remind myself of the things that led up to that. And since it's complicated and it's financial, there are always things that you can point to that are contributing factors. And so there was a bunch of deregulation and other monetary policies that, that definitely contributed to the collapse. But it's also clear, as you talk quite a bit about in the book that the regulators weren't doing their jobs and that these SNLs were allowed to survive, particularly Lincoln, long after they really should have been shut down. And that extended period of time, which was as much as two years in some cases, you know, resulted in even more losses, right, for the investors and for the yeah. taxpayers. So tell me about the Keating Five and how Keating and the regulators exasperated the, the catastrophe? Sure. So the, the regulatory story was a little complicated because the local regulators in, at the San Francisco branch of the Federal Home Loan Bank were alarmed at what Keating was doing. It was, and they were trying to, to shut him down. And there was tension with, with the National uh, Federal Home Loan Bank in, in D.C. that was... Uh, 
not exactly ready to to pull the trigger and and close it down. Mm-hmm. Heating was working all angles possible to keep um, to continue to use the bank, the uh, Lincoln savings for his uh, financing, and had um, brought in a basically it tried to pack the federal home loan bank board so they would overrule the the local regulators and allow him to stay in business so he got a uh, two of his folks uh, appointed to the federal home loan bank board and that ended up not working then he started calling in political favors around congress and uh, we can talk about his, his political background but he had quite a bit of stature in Christian political circles and had quite a few uh, national contacts in the in the Republican Party. So he wound up getting five U.S. senators to intervene on his behalf and to pressure the regulators not to shut down his bank out in L.A. And the senators, uh, California was Alan Cranston and yeah, then another name I know. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and then John McCain and yep. Dennis D. Consini from Arizona. Then there was a, a Don Regal in Michigan and John Glenn in Ohio. And that seems kind of a strange mix of folks, but all of them had some local uh, footprint for American Continental Corporation, Keating's holding company. In California, Cranston cared about uh, Keating and Lincoln Savings because Lincoln Savings was based in Irvine. In Arizona, Keating was a major force in the Phoenix real estate uh, economy. In uh, Detroit, Michigan, he had a, a large hotel downtown. And Ohio is where he came from, uh, his, his roots. And so these, these five senators uh, sat down and a meeting with uh, senior regulators of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board in April of 1987, and just were really pushing back on this idea that Keating should be shut down, and the regulators are saying this is, there's some really serious concerns here. The senators are saying, well, this is a, an important constituent for us. He's created jobs in our districts and our states, and we really are, are concerned about this. This meeting began to leak out, and the newspaper that I have focused on in my book wound up getting uh, a transcript of what happened in this meeting, which suggests that somebody in the meeting might have been wearing a recording device uh, in 1987, which is a little bit more difficult than it would be today, you know? Yeah. One of the reporters thought that, you know, one of the regulators was wearing a wire and they just had not, they just really didn't trust what the senators were doing. So that was, that was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So this, this trade newspaper that I profile that is, uh, it's called the National Thrift News has a circulation, you know, just north of 10,000 comes out bi-weekly and it is a newspaper just focused on the mortgage industry. So if you're a mortgage broker, you'd read the National Thrift News, but you and I could not find it on the street. We couldn't find it in a newspaper box. It was a specialty newspaper. They get this transcript and they 
go and they call each senator and they call Keating <laughs> and they get them all to speak on the record and they verify everything in that meeting and they publish a story in September 1987. It's incredible the reporting, the level of detail and the, the care they took to nail down a controversial story. And so they report this, this story and what I find to be shocking was mainstream media at the time had not, um, did not follow up for uh, just about two years. And in the interim, Keating's Lincoln Savings fails and you know, winds up costing you know taxpayers over uh, $3 billion. There was here political pressure that was brought on the regulators, a uh, reticence of the regulators to, to act. One of the, the key regulators in Washington, D.C., Edwin Gray, was basically forced out in the Reagan administration and a much more accommodating pro-development uh, regulator was brought in, uh, Danny Wall, and he made the call to keep Keating open when the, the local Federal Home Loan Bank Board in San Francisco wanted to shut him down. So yeah, the, the guys that are the people at National Thrift News definitely are the heroes of this story. And I want to talk a little bit about trade journals just so uh, people can follow this. So it was what we call a trade journal or a specialty newspaper, as you say. And in the book, you talk about some of these others that have, um, you know, really exciting names like tax reporter and American banker and aquatic <laughs> weekly, or I'm kind of, I'm uh, surely butchering their names, but you know, that that's what I mean. They're, they're really specialty newspapers. That was part of what interested me about your book was the, you know, looking at this kind of niche reporting here and that you found this point in time where what these people did was really quite uh, remarkable. I think there's a quote from somebody from the Dallas Morning News, you know, more of a mainstream publication saying, oh yeah, you know, that savings and loan thing, that would have been really boring. Our, our readers wouldn't have been interested in that. So tell us a little bit about why it was so brave for National Thrift News to have published this paper, knowing Keating's uh, tactics toward the press. The National Thrift News has a business model where its uh, subscribers and readers are all from the same industry. It's kind of like the ultimate community newspaper. Everybody knows everybody. And if you're going to write something critical uh, about this industry, you're going to bump into that person at the next conference. And there's a, a very intimate back and forth relationship between the readership and, and the newspaper. And so you're running the risk of biting the hand that feeds you mm -hmm. if you write critical material in the trade press. There are um, trade publications. Generally, there's, there's several tiers, and I'm writing about the, the really top tier uh, trade publications where the journalists usually have some mainstream journalism training and then have uh, come over to the specialty press world. So the top tier would include Tax Notes in Virginia, which does really high quality uh, coverage of legislation involving taxes. I used to read Tax Notes when I was a reporter at AP, Bloomberg, and Dow Jones, and Wall Street Journal for 
for tips and insight and an explanation on how things work. So there's an audience for the trade press that is not only the industry, but people who are regulating the industry mm. and then journalists who are trying to understand the industry mm. and then academic researchers like myself love the trade press because it gets into such detail, you mm. know, other, uh, Outstanding trade publications would be, you know, Computer World and uh, Aviation Week and, and Space uh, Technology. So these uh, trade publications uh, serve a very important role in our market and capitalist system. Their idea of a story is if somebody deviates from the ethical norms in an industry, that's a story. Mm -hmm. If they do something outstanding, that's a story. If they do something, you know, that is uh, negative, that's a story. So I argue that they are enforcers of business ethics. They're enforcers of a type of corporate morality. And they are essential for us to understand what is happening in an industry and for consumers to read some of these uh, publications would be very useful if you wanted to protect your money or, or, or understand adverse players in an industry. The, the trade press historically has been criticized for being in bed with the industry because of its very intimate relationship. And there are certainly some section of the trade press industry that is acts no more than like, like PR, you know, like house newsletters and so forth. But my uh, research was looking at those independent trade publications that were adopting mainstream traditional journalism values from the society professional journalists. They, they cared about the separation between advertising and editorial. They tried not to let the advertising influence their editorial product. And these publications, these there's award-winning investigative reporting that is happening in these, uh, these publications. And I found it at like Aquatics International. <laughs> this is a swimming pool magazine. You know, what in God's name could a swimming pool magazine do that would be investigative reporting? Well, they did a cover story about pedophiles mm. in the swimming pool industry and the need to do background checks on your lifeguards. And that really made a lot of people angry in the industry, but it was a very, sure. very important story for someone who's running a, a public park to think about the potential risk that they could be running and, and how their, their little pool operations can affect the broader society, you know? So the trade press is, is a very, big part of the media universe. A lot of people don't know about it, but mm -hmm. they, they bring in about $12 billion in print and digital advertising. And also people are willing to pay for it, which I think, oh, yeah. and you know, that's an interesting model in this day and age where news is free and sometimes not very good. So, so tell us about the readership and, and why people are willing to pay. Well, when I was at Dow Jones, uh, I, you know, faced all sorts of, you know, challenges trying to get expense reports through. But when I would put in the, uh, the, the report for 
you know, I think it was $1,500 for a year's subscription to tax notes. It always went through because it was, mm. I didn't have to make the case that this was incredibly central for, for me to stay on top of my beat and to do my job. So that model, uh, it's uh, subscription-based primarily, and they, these trade publications are supplementing their income by selling data that they gather in the course of their reporting. Mm. If you ever read any of the American city business journals, you know, like the Baltimore Business Journal or the, the Nashville Business Journal, you will see they, they love to do these lists, you know, lists of top uh, CEOs, you know, highest paid CEOs. Well, those lists are part of a data service that they gather and they resell them to, to vendors. And so that's a, that's a nice revenue source for them. They also make money by uh, sponsoring conferences and uh, they can bring in people uh, th through that way. So that's, that's the essential um, business model. These are multimedia publications. Mm -hmm. uh, they are on the web. They, they do video services. And some will have offspring where they were doing uh, training of, uh, of folks in an industry so you could get your, your certification for, for law or accounting or so forth so, through an organization like that. To, in order to be a certified reporter on that topic? Oh, uh, I'm thinking more like if you were to, uh, if you wanted to get a, a mortgage certification, I'm a, I'm a you know, uh, an appraiser. I could take one of their classes for continuing education credit. I see. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, they're doing a lot of ways of monetizing the information they gather. Yeah, it's an interesting model, as I say. And so Computer World is one that the listeners may have, may have heard of. Also Variety, I guess you would also classify as a trade journal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and that one, I, you know, obviously everyone in the industry reads Variety, and it is a source of tremendous news. I mean, just, just remarkable. Uh, absolutely, yeah, that's a very good example. Yeah. yeah, it's an interesting contrast to the mainstream media. I was a little disappointed, but of course, that's the way the world is, that you said in the book that working for a trade journal is sometimes not perceived as prestigious as working for some of the larger publications. And yet, in fact, you know, those people are doing the really heavy lifting. But t tell us a little bit more about National Thrift News and who owned it and how uh, they bore up under the pressure of publishing such a, such a news report. Sure. So uh, the editor of National Thrift News was uh, a guy named Stan Strachan, who I, I profile in the book. And, and Stan was quite a character. He immigrated over to the United States when he was a young boy from England and went to uh, lived in, in Brooklyn with his family, got through high school, but never went to college. He idealized uh, the United States. He, he really thought this. Uh, he he loved the the opportunity that was available. He thought the the savings and loan industry was uh, a great way for the middle class to gain financial security uh, through home ownership and and rise uh, through society. Stan started off in newspapers in the in the late fifties in New Jersey and New York worked for the Journal American, which was a big afternoon daily in New York. It's not around anymore. Ended up at the American Banker, was fairly senior in the American Banker uh, 
organization and then left in the in the early 70s did a little freelance writing and ended up being approached by a couple of investors who wanted to start a new newspaper to serve this booming housing industry mm. in the in the late 70s there was just a very heavy demand for for home building throughout the country and and had to be financed so they saw the savings loan industry as as a great business opportunity so these two outside investors who had been uh, had worked as regulators hired uh, Stan and made him part owner of the National Thrift News and it started up in 1978 it grew uh, pretty quickly but never got to be you know it, I think it never had more than 20 uh, five people on staff. Okay. The uh, reporters were generally young, and uh, he would train them up, and they ended up, you know, getting quite, you know, some excellent experience and went on to, to senior positions. One of the, the editor of the Bond Buyer uh, newspaper, a very important Wall Street paper, was one of Stan's um, proteges, and others have gone on to win major book you know, awards and investigative reporting. So the Thrift News uh, grew up really with the explosion of, of the bond market and the, the growth, rapid growth of Wall Street throughout the early period of the Reagan administration. And it was one of the things that, that made them uh, stand out in, in trade publications is Strachan would write critically even about people who he socialized with. Mm-hmm. And so he would write uh, critical articles about people they might ended up being might end up being on their boats on the weekend, you know, mm-hmm. things sure. like that. But he was willing, he was considered to be a renegade, but also had incredibly detailed knowledge of the industry. And so everyone talked to him. Strachan passed away in, in, in 1997. I wound up, um, his daughter gave me access to the family files. It was just remarkable the number of condolence letters from senior executives at Time Warner and, and, and other banks and, and institutions throughout the country. He was very, very well liked and admired. When I was reading this story about them breaking the news, it reminded me of that situation that arose when there was a young reporter, I think she was working for Fortune, mm-hmm. who happened to publish an article pointing out that Enron was not cash flow positive. And, and kind of a, huh, isn't that weird that they're not cash flow positive when they have their, when their PL uh, indicates that they have this uh, tremendous income flows. And of course, you know, what exploded after that was another amazing story and, and scandal. Or did you follow her story at all? Oh, yeah. I, I, I used the story of Bethany McLean in my, uh, in my business journalism class, and we read her, uh, her fortune reporting on Enron. She was one of the, the few to get on the Enron story uh, before anyone else. And certainly uh, there was a little coverage in a regional publication that the Wall Street Journal had in Texas. But but Bethany was really the first national reporter to get on to Enron. And I would put her in the category of uh, Stan Strachan and uh, Diane Enriquez and 
just John Kerry, you from, from the Wall Street Journal, just journalistic heroes who really know their topic and are willing to write critically about the industries that they cover. Bethany McLean uh, was able to publish that piece despite incredible pressure brought by Enron at this time, one of the largest companies. Uh, they were Houston uh, Energy and uh, Utilities firm. And they had very deep uh, ties to, uh, to Dick Cheney and George uh, W. Bush. And they brought in lawyers and uh, senior executives to Fortune to try to beat her up and get her to back off on her story. And she hung in there. And that story led to other media picking up that maybe not everything was right on target with Enron and uh, the Wall Street Journal began to then assign a couple of reporters and really dig into the story. And Enron um, unraveled within a year of uh, Bethany McLean's reporting. It was just remarkable. I remember reading that article and thinking, what? You've got to be kidding me. They're not right. cash flow positive. And that, yeah. that, that this fortune reporter of all the experts that we have in this industry, that she's the one who just kind of mildly pointed this out in this article. So, and it, it's such a, it's such a red flag, right? How on earth could it, <laughs> but I didn't know that, of course, Enron, I'm sure with the power that they had would have put pressure on her, but I didn't know that she bore up under that pressure and, and still got her story out. That's amazing. And, and Fortune, to its credit, um, published the piece even after they had uh, published cover glowing cover stories about how Ken Lay, the CEO of Enron, mm -hmm. was very, very tight with, uh, with Bush and Cheney, how he was just entrepreneurial genius and was leading a new type of, uh, of high-tech uh, business in, in the Southwest. Enron was voted the be one of the best places to work in the country. And so all of this glowing coverage had been on the cover of Fortune. And wow. then uh, they, to their credit, um, supported their reporter because she had done the work. Yeah, amazing. Let's talk in general about journalists and what's happening to the press over the past few decades. And one of the things you talk about in the book is the rise of publicists. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us some more about that? So this has been a longstanding um, evolution. Companies did not really engage with public relations until the late 1890s uh, in the, uh, the J.P. Morgan and, and John Rockefeller era. And publicity and, and the whole publicity industry has really grown up in tandem with their regulatory risk and their risk of uh, getting um, either penalized by the courts for antitrust behavior or, or other regulatory activity. Hmm. The publicity industry is um, very, very large and, and very influential. A major company like uh, General Electric will have an in-house, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of of highly trained, sophisticated political analysts, financial analysts, and media experts within their public affairs unit, and they'll be able to um, to respond with some really cutting edge uh, analysis. 
and they will come in and talk to a perhaps less trained, less experienced uh, young journalist in, in their 20s at a news organization to try to get them to, to back off on a particular uh, story or to, to see the, uh, their narrative through the, the eyes of, of uh, corporate America. So in, in a lot of ways, there is this big mismatch of, of economic power and money and resources between the corporate um, publicity outfits and, uh, and a shrinking media system. So it, there is a, a lot of research that's been done about how corporate press releases are showing up uh, lightly edited in major news publications because the, uh, there just isn't the, the care or attention to wanting to go out and, and report these further. Or resources. Yeah, yeah. And this is a problem in business journalism that I want to have uh, people recognize and, and try, try to address. My former publications, this was not happening at the AP or Bloomberg or Dow Jones. They cared very much about getting a, uh, a well-rounded uh, story out about particular companies. But they still... There is a you know curtailment, especially at the at the Journal and at AP, of business writers covering these industries on a beat uh, basis. And I would like to get more troops in the <laughs> in the in the trenches there to go after these these very important stories. At the same time, as an academic, I'm trying to train and support young journalists and let them know about this mismatch and what will happen when you write about critically about a bank and the sort of back backlash that you'll get. Mm -hmm. So that can be uh, uh, very difficult. And also how it's important to try to engage these, this corporate PR apparatus and extract information from it and insight. It can be a reporting tool if you learn to use it properly. That takes some amount of sophistication and time to understand the industry, understand where the corporate PR people can assist you in informing the public. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was something that I was trying to do towards uh, the later periods as a, as a news reporter. I think you mentioned in there now or recently in the recent years, the number of publicists outnumber the journalists by six to one. You're right. And it's that, getting worse. That shocked me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's getting worse. That was some research out of England and uh, London back in in the mid-2000s. It's, Shows yeah, what I, you're up against. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At, at the same time, you know, a well-trained uh, journalist can can do just fine <laughs> you know you if you if you have the documents and you have the reporting you know you you can prevail and and if you have the support from a news organization like the national thrift news or or those fortune editors who backed up bethany mclean or the wall street journal who just backed up john carry in his investigation of theranos mm -hmm. the journal did uh faced enormous pressure from Theranos. They had hired David Boyce, you know, the, the famous uh, trial lawyer who mm -hmm. represented Al Gore in the, in the vote recount. 
And uh, enormous pressure the journal was placed under. They even contacted Rupert Murdoch and they, uh, they supported Carew's really, really important investigation of this uh, medical device company out in California. You use the uh, Keating case to uh, talk about how we can defend journalism and create better journalism by studying what happened in that particular case. And what are your takeaways? I think there were three. So one of the main takeaways is it's really important for a news organization to have a journalist in the ownership structure. Mm. Having a, a journalist as co-owner or full owner of a news organization will uh, lead to decisions about resources that uh, will benefit, tend to benefit journalism from what my research has found. And that ownership structure is, it was very critical with, with Stan Strachan, for example. Mm-hmm. While he was reporting on the savings and loan industry, the industry was experiencing thousands of, of failures because of this catastrophic problem in the mortgage markets at that time. And his readership was going out of business on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. His co-investors were saying, well, we've got to cut back on the newsroom. And he goes, at this time, this is when we need more reporters. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a quite a bit of a back and forth. And they uh, wound up supporting Stan, and they did not cut the, uh, cut the staff at a time when, when revenues were dropping, because he argued that it would have been detrimental to journalism. So that's, um, that's one of the, the key issues here. I think that um, trying to find a way to get these trade publications to work in tandem with mainstream publications would, be, would really help advance uh, business journalism. Hmm. One of the things that would be great would be, and we've seen this a little bit, is to have a trade publication like the American Banker uh, work with the ProPublica, which mm-hmm. is a, a digital news organization, to distribute their um, uh, investigations to a much broader audience. And ProPublica has partnerships with the Washington Post and the New York Times and, and other uh, organizations. So leveraging the expertise that you see in the trade press and getting a broader distribution to the public and using the the legacy news media's uh, franchise and name recognition to help distribute news from smaller newsrooms. There's been this tension between a traditional mainstream news organization and small upstarts. Some of it is due to institutional arrogance by the big papers. Mm. I've experienced this directly many times in my career and that just needs to go away, and there needs to be a greater willingness to partner with startup news organizations to get this uh, happening. I also think the training is just really critical for business reporters. I'm trying to do a little bit of it, and I w- wish we could get more universities to put um, business journalism into core journalism curriculum. It's helping all the students get jobs when they get out, you Mm -hmm. know, if they can read a financial statement, even if they're not going to be a business reporter, they're going to be a better entertainment reporter, if they can read a financial statement. Yep. They're going to be a better sports reporter covering contracts of NBA players, you know, if you can read read a, a, a balance sheet. 
So those are some of the things that I think would be uh, important to have business journalism advance and evolve. Tell us about the Panama Papers, speaking of collaboration, if you know about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Panama Papers was just an incredible, this is the sort of uh, collaboration I'd love to see uh, happen more in the news media. This was an effort by uh, a number of news organizations around the country, organized in part by the uh, Institute for International Journalists. Um, Michael Hudson, who's now at the, the Associated Press, was part of this coalition. And they had received a, a leak of uh, documents involving a law firm down in Panama that was involved in setting up tax shelters and sheltering uh, money of uh, wealthy individuals throughout the, the world. So this group created a consortium and cooperated across countries through different languages and in secret reported out this and shared information and were able to publish the, the Panama Papers um, investigative series that uh, pointed out, you know, heads of state in Europe were sheltering their money down yeah. in uh, offshore tax shelters. It became quite a, uh, a political uh, embarrassment for, uh, for a number of folks, led to a number of investigations and, and, and changes in, in international tax policy. As a, as a former tax reporter, I just really admired the, the level of depth and the accuracy of their uh, reporting and, and showing the, uh, the incredible flaws in, in the international tax system and how that's draining resources from our uh, domestic uh, tax base and, and how that was costing the social costs that that uh, bore out. So that Panama Papers, I think the concept there that I would love to see expanded is having these smaller, you know, news organizations. Some were not, uh, Der Spiegel is certainly not that small, but others were able to team together and become uh, together uh, a sum of, their, of the parts. And this is just, I think, has great promise in the digital age to provide accountability journalism. Yeah, I thought it was a really bright light because it was a window into power and money that you don't often get to see. I was very impressed and, and yeah, I thought it was a, a bright light maybe for the future of journalism. I and mean, there's something that's actually happening on a similar basis in collegiate uh, journalism. I'm actually working with uh, the University of Maryland's Howard Center for Investigative Reporting and they've pulled together a coalition of, of universities who have student journalists working on a project right now about homelessness, mm. intersection of the homelessness and, and law enforcement. So there's that same kind of uh, collaboration model is, is now being tested out uh, by, uh, by the University of Maryland's uh, Philip Merrill College of Journalism. It's pretty neat. We talked a little bit about the pressure on journalists and reporters from the industry powerhouses that they cover. And I happened to notice a tweet from a reporter who said that she'd gotten screamed at that day by an investment banker because she was in possession of some news that might mean that he would lose some money. 
What are your thoughts about the effect of social media on traditional media? Yeah, it's it's a complicated um, relationship. I'm a huge consumer of Twitter, and I have a presence on on Facebook. I use Twitter on a regular basis to gather news and to understand what is happening with some of the reporters that I admire. So I use it as a um, a news you know reading and and gathering tool. It's a uh, a wonderful platform for distributing. Uh, quality journalism on and getting out to a broader audience. So, you know, we started using Twitter at the Wall Street Journal back in about 2007, 2008, and then began to formalize it. So it's a, a great way to engage with an audience. What I want my students to understand is there are layers to this, uh, this social media distribution platform. If you know directly who is sending the material out, like you know a Capitol Hill reporter for the New York Times or 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 somebody at, at PBS, then this can be a good way to to keep on track of of high quality, curated, professionally produced, and edited journalism. It's a good way of doing that. If you're getting something retweeted or shared from one of your friends and you're not familiar with the news organization, this is the opportunity for spreading misinformation. So we are trying desperately to get news literacy spread to all corners of this, of this country and the world so people don't do that. And the main thing that we are trying to emphasize is if it is too alarming and it creates, you know, uh, the story will, will generate uh, a surge in your, in your heart rate and your blood pressure, and it seems too good to be true. Look at who is the source of this news. And if you can't verify it, don't share it. Mm. Don't distribute this further into your network and pollute what's going on. And to those who say that news is free, I am just telling all my students and and every public event I go to, you have to pay for professionally curated news. You can't rely on on free news. And if you really care about quality journalism, then you're going to subscribe to the local news website. You're going to get a paid subscription to the Washington Post or or to uh, tax notes or what have you. But we really need the public to step up and, and support with their wallets the uh, quality journalism that's out there. We can't have a new generation being raised with the idea that news is free because it is not. It's very expensive to produce high-quality information. Yeah, maybe that should be our new slogan is fake news is free. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I like it. <laughs> Sorry to quote yourself at yourself. But this uh, sentence caught my eye. You wrote that individual consumers and investors need quality information to function in a free market and make crucial decisions about modern life, especially in retirement planning and navigating health insurance. And I personally would add in taxes because I for think sure. that's, a, that's a big <laughs> deal for individuals also. And you, you also talked about taxes. And you say in your book that consumers will pay for good information. 
And do you see any positive signs about that? We kind of went through a dip where news was supposed to be free and everybody was canceling subscriptions and all the reporters were being laid off. And do you see any positive signs now? It's uh, we're in a very difficult uh, space still in the restructuring of the media industry. A lot of the legacy newspapers um, are shrinking and and smaller papers are, are closing down. And it's uh, it's a difficult sell in rural America to start up a digital website. Uh, just just something that doesn't really match the the lifestyle with with folks. The the papers seem to be a a better fit. I I am happy to see um, the energy in high quality uh, digital newsrooms uh, like like ProPublica, like uh, um, Injustice Watch in Chicago, and uh, the Marshall Project. These are uh, really important startups. Uh, uh, Public Source in Pittsburgh is another another good one. Hmm. Uh, um, there is uh, the online news organization has exploded in membership and their their conference is huge now and there's a lot of uh, energy in that regard. I see that there is uh, a willingness for major news organizations to, to invest in training for their reporters and uh, I'll be going to the investigative reporters and editors uh, computer reporting conference in about a month and and that'll have well over a thousand people from all around the, the world trying to learn how to code, you know. So these are um, these are are good signs. But every journalist, every editor, everybody who cares about the potential of quality journalism of advancing our society, we all need to get out there and to, to do some media literacy training and tell people about the basics of verification and the value of quality journalism, because we are at a moment where it could slip away if we don't do a job to, to tell people that they need to pay for it. It's very inspirational words for sure. So Rob, would you like to tell the listeners about where they could find the book or follow your work or anything you'd like to share with them? Well, well thank you very much, Jennifer. Yes. Uh, the book is uh, available on uh, University of Illinois Press, and so you can buy it directly from the publisher, my my most excellent publisher. Let me look, get the uh, URL here. Um, you can also get it on Amazon.com, uh, and my uh, my website is uh, Rob S. Wells, robswells.com. You can follow me on Twitter at rwells. 1961, you'll see in my Twitter feed, my commentary on local news events and pictures of my dog. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And thanks, Rob, for the work that you're doing. I think it's really important. And I appreciate your coming on the show and in other uh, public events to talk about journalism. Yeah, well, thank you very much, Jennifer. I really enjoyed it. And I really appreciate you spending the, the time to to talk about my work, I really am I'm very flattered. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. 
During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.